VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. We have a great show for you this week. Andreas Weigand is here. He is the first ever chief scientist of Amazon, so he has lots of interesting stories to tell and things to say. But first, a detour. So I spent much of this past week at Dreamforce. And if you don't know what Dreamforce is, you're in for a treat. It is this annual conference that is put on by Salesforce.com, the business software giant that is run by Mark Benioff who is a San Francisco billionaire who you may recall just recently paid almost 200 million bucks for Time Magazine. Benioff is a uh, kind of a force of nature and every year his id is fully realized at Dreamforce, which is not only unlike any corporate event I've ever experienced, it's not really like any event I've experienced full stop. Uh, So first off, there's the size of this thing, more than 170,000 people descend on San Francisco for four days, which just makes the city a bit of a nightmare. Keep in mind, this is a city that where only about 850,000 people live, so it increases the population by about a fifth. And the whole affair has this really odd vibe about it. It's a mix of hyper-commercialism and spirituality and earnestness, and we're going to change the world, all wrapped up into one. But to best explain it, I thought I'd give you a quick whistle-stop tour. And it starts in a clump of potted trees that they call the Dream Forest. And next to the Dream Forest, which is actually in the middle of an AstroTurf street in downtown San Francisco, every morning of Dream Force, a group of Buddhist monks are there just kind of standing around, hanging out, on hand to help worn-out executives find peace amid the chaos. And I talked to one. His name was Harmony. Hi. Hi. I'm Danny. Brother, Harmony. 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 Your name's Harmony. Yes. That's <laughs> my uh, teacher gave that name for me. Ah, okay. Where are you from? I'm from originally uh, from Vietnam, but uh, I live in uh, New York right now. Oh, okay. We have a center there. Oh, nice. So what do you do here? Uh, here is uh, mindfulness uh, zone. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, every year we uh, uh, offer our uh, present, uh, our uh, practice mindfulness, and offering uh, displays to uh, uh, Salesforce uh, customer to help them to um, you know sometimes release their stress or you know um, 
have a moment of uh, release the tension. And yeah. Oh wow. And so are you busy, quite busy when you're here. It is. It is very busy, but we enjoy it. Yeah. This is a very diff- different experience in our monastery, in our centers. Now, I was so intrigued by Harmony that I forgot to ask him for some mindfulness tips, but to be fair, I was distracted. You see, because just behind Harmony, where I was talking to him, there was a giant artificial waterfall that had been set up by Salesforce. And in front of that waterfall uh, was a stage and a band was playing. They'd been flown in from Hawaii, where Benioff has this huge beachfront estate. And this band was playing Sting Covers. Buddhist monks and a Hawaiian cover band were only the tip of the iceberg. From there, I went inside to see a keynote speech on some, it was about some new features of Salesforce's software. Because remember, that's what this whole thing is about, selling sales and marketing software to big companies. And I've seen lots of presentations and keynotes over my years as a journalist, but this one was uh, different. There's about a crowd of about 5,000 people in this big convention hall, and they kicked off the whole thing with a high-five cam where people were cajoled into slapping hands with their neighbors. And to get them into the mood, they cranked out an original song, an original about the folks inside the client companies who help implement Salesforce. They call them awesome admins, these people that help companies use their software. And people were into the song. I ducked out of the awesome admin jamboree early because, well, I'm neither an admin nor awesome. And I wanted to head over to the main event of that day, which this is the, actually the first day of the, um, the conference, which is a big keynote by Benioff himself. And it started out with a traditional Hawaiian blessing. Obviously, I won't play the whole speech as we have other business to attend to. But Benioff's whole philosophy can be summed up in that what he thinks is that companies can do well by doing good. And he really wants to change the world with customer relationship management software. Now, those may seem like kind of strange bedfellows, but they're really not to Benioff. So over the course of the few days of the conference, he brought in quite an impressive array of people from Al Gore to talk about climate change, to Will I Am, who judged a pitch contest and also talked about AI, who knew? Deepak Chopra, Ariana Huffington, the list goes on. The whole thing, if I had to sum it up, is like a cross between a religious revival and a TED talk. This is a very important time in the whole world. We all know that. 
It's a time when we are taking personal action to change the world. We know that we're not relying on our government leaders, or we're not relying on just our NGO leaders. We're not relying just on our business leaders. We're doing it together. We're coming together. Each and every one of us has something to do. Each and every one of us knows we have a purpose deep inside us. And that, we hope, will get further amplified and further expressed this week. And I can see that in all of you. Oh, and one more thing. Benioff also threw in a couple free concerts, which were held in the heart of San Francisco, right in front of City Hall. Uh, They cut off all the streets. It was a huge thing. And he stocked it with free booze and free food for like tens of thousands of people. He brought in two acts, Janet Jackson and Metallica, which banged out a bunch of songs for a huge crowd on a very breezy, blustery night in San Francisco. And there's, I don't know, probably 20,000 maybe Salesforce devotees and lanyards and free conference backpacks and other swag. We'll leave it there. We could have put a lot more stuff about the uh, about Dreamforce, but now let's get to today's show. Yo, technology. What is it all about? So we live in a post-privacy economy, having the romantic view that it should be different doesn't do anybody, any individual, any citizen, any customer any good. This week on Danny in the Valley, we have Andreas Weigand, who, as I mentioned, was the first chief scientist at Amazon. He also lived in China for many years. He wrote a book called Data for the People, which we'll talk about. He's an advisor to Angela Merkel on privacy issues. He advises loads of big companies on how to use data to compete in the 21st century to compete with Amazon, which obviously he knows something about. So I thought, what a great person to do five big questions with. And I can promise you what he says will make you think and it will very probably make you mad. And one more thing before we get started. When I sat down with Wygand, it was about a little less than a month ago, right as Amazon became a trillion dollar company and there was a previous round of tech testimony in Washington, D.C. So we do uh, briefly touch on a couple of those things. I just wanted to give you a heads up for that context. Now, without further ado, here's Andreas Weigand. Hope you enjoy it. I'm a data guy. I did my PhD at Stanford on neural networks for time series prediction. And then in the 90s, spent my time as an academic at NYU looking at what traders were doing, trying to predict the behavior of people. And then the web came along, and Jeff Bezos decided that he wanted a chief scientist, which meant somebody who knows how to apply the scientific method, which actually means somebody who can ask questions that can be answered by experiments. So I went to Amazon. We did thousands of experiments, found out all kinds of things about human behavior. Then I went to China. I was in China for 17 years and split my time between China, 
United States, in San Francisco, and Europe. And it was fascinating to work with Alibaba, to work with Tencent, and see from basically ground zero a data economy being built up, which is probably larger than the rest of the world. So that's actually a great place to start. My first question, we're going to kind of start on the darker side and then we can maybe get a bit lighter. So in China right now, there's things like this, the social credit score that I think was started to roll out last year. And even in America, you have companies that are now using social data as part of a way to assess you as a credit risk, et cetera. I guess the question is, is, is this a kind of a dystopian glimpse of the future or is this where we're going? I think these questions are not binary questions. Let's start with what the problem is. We have scarce resources that we need to allocate. This could be money, that could be education, etc. How do we allocate them? Should we do it by which school your parents went to or by skin color, as it used to be in the United States, sadly? So the Chinese had the idea of writing down an equation, a function, that has many, many terms that determines your score, your social credit score, if you will. Credit is a bit misleading because while it is done by Alibaba and financial, it is used for much more than for credit. For example, it is used to decide on which school your child can go to. What, the social credit score has an effect on where you can send your kid? Yes. For instance, if it's below a certain level, you can't use the high-speed railway. So it has huge effects beyond just yeah. sending or buying or lending yeah. money. But I wanted to start with what the problem is. The problem is that there are scarce resources anywhere in the world. Housing, clearly being in Silicon Valley here, is another example. And you want to find a way that is fair to distribute that scarce resource. So that is a starting point. Mm -hmm. And there we can only congratulate the Chinese government for having sat down a couple of years ago and said, we need an equation. We need a transparent equation. We need an equation that people can look at, where people need what levers they have to change their score if it's not quite good enough. Similar to what we have in the West with our credit scores, although not as transparent here. I mean, you do get to see your FICO score or the variations of the FICO mm -hmm. score, but you don't quite get told what you need to do if you want to get the slightly better rate for that mortgage. So in China, it is trans you know what moves the dial in terms of your social score? Yes. I, of course, you know, don't read Chinese. I know that there are some terms I found surprising. For example, there's one term in that score, whether you are treating your parents well. How do you translate that into an equation? How do you measure that? Do you visit your parents? Or you could even ask your parents if they feel treated well. You can ask the neighbors. Uh, once you have that concept, which I found very surprising, but I can see that's part of the Chinese idea, that they put these terms in which would not have made it in Germany or the U.S. Or really, yeah, I can't think of anywhere else where it would make that, where that would become a reality because i don't even know how you measure that do they have state people going around asking the neighbors oh when's the last time you saw so-and-so visit their mother oh first i think self-reported and then you know 
if parents complain, abandonment, then... It goes into I, the system. It yeah, goes into the soup. Yeah, I'm not stuck on this one. I do see my mom regularly who is 93 <laughs> now, and I'll see her again three weeks, so please. <laughs> it's just an example of that they try to capture somehow the social well-being of people and by extension of society in that function, well knowing that things will change over time. They might have forgotten terms, others might be too important, too highly weighted. However, it is a step, I think, in the right direction towards fairness of the distribution of scarce resources. Let me give you another example, an example I think which worked very well in the United States. Organ donors. There are 10 people who need a kidney, mm -hmm. and there's only one kidney coming in. And let's assume that kidney is compatible with six of these 10. Who do you give it to? The dude who is willing to pop down the largest amount of cash? We don't think that's quite fair. It's based on need, right? Or urgency of need, effectively, isn't it? We don't know. So smart people at the Mayo Clinic got together and said, we are coming up with a score. Not a credit score here, but it's called the MELT score. And then we assess people according to that score. And we think that is the way kidneys should be distributed. And then we rank people. And the number one on that score, he gets the kidney. And if for some reason it's not compatible with him, it goes to number two, etc. So there are good examples where we do have scores to help us in a fair and transparent way. You're saying this is potentially a pathway to a fairer system. This, to me, sounds horrific. I mean, man on the street doesn't know this algorithm. So if they're starting from a lower socioeconomic status, how much weight is given to the fact that they have to overcome larger obstacles, etc.? And this gets to this question of around data, especially with the smartphone. We're all leaving these data trails everywhere. And then it goes into a big black box and then outspits a number that can completely change, you know, which train you can ride, where you can send your kids to school, what loan you can get, where you can live, etc. Danny, what is the alternative? I don't know. But is that, is that a good enough answer? I think it's a very good answer because let's look at some alternatives. Mm -hmm. We can roll the dice. That's always a good baseline, and that kid's getting to that school, and that kid doesn't get to the school. Do we think we can do better than rolling the dice if we have assessment tests? Well, I think we can. Or let's step back. Mm. Our laws and lots of our thinking stems from a time where there was no data. For example, insurance. Insurance is the pooling of risk where you assume you know nothing about the person. We do know things about the person now. How do we use it? I think by pretending we don't know, what we are creating is that there are sort of these ways of having proxies of, say, gender, of person, or age that will sneak in. Then we lose control over what we really want and what that life insurance policy really is. You know, in the 80s, when I came here, HIV had just 
uh, broken out. And people tried all kinds of ways of finding out because we didn't know really and we didn't have it under control back then. So I think the better way is to be open and to be transparent and to say those are the terms which we have. And those are the ways which we in a democratic society believe should be there and feel free to disagree. So if we as society feel that, let's say, whether you take care of your parents matters or whether it doesn't matter, and that if you abandon your parents and let them die, that's not a problem, then, well, we should live up to it and say, okay, we are removing that weight, we are setting that weight to zero. So what I'm saying is I don't think there's an alternative. We can have this illusion that some benevolent dictator will sort of do the right thing. And I won't give examples of names of presidents of states here. <laughs> but uh, I, as a scientist, very much believe that we are better off in formulating our hypotheses and then doing experiments and figuring out what do people, the people who voted in this country, what do they really want, and then adjust the parameters. So I'm very passionate about the scientific method thing as opposed to just tweeting about things. And so that leads kind of perfectly because I, well, two things. One, this reminds me of an episode of Black Mirror, which I'm, you may have seen. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. Used, have you? Do you know which one I'm I talking about? I totally know which one you're talking about. The one where everybody rates everybody. Yeah, you so like go I, like okay. I'm one. I'm going out. I'm buying coffee and totally, banana bread. I totally not. And no. because I was like, have a great day. I get a Yay. couple stars. Correct. So now you know when, you saw how that ended. The lady went crazy the, and she got and thrown that in jail. Is the only free lady in the world who didn't give. Exactly about anything. Exactly. After this, you want to go to that wedding because what, the, what you're ta- yeah, what you're talking about is effectively living your whole life by, in a way, by um, it's like political consultants, you know, like knowing exactly what you can and can't say. Like your whole life is a focus group. Well said. By the way, since this is a podcast, yes, I would love to meet the people who produce Black Mirror. So if anybody has any lead, <laughs> please email Danny yes, or email I'll send me, it along. Yeah. Andreas at Weigand.com. I genuinely think these are geniuses. And not only that episode, but many of the yeah. other episodes. I just want to know how is it so awesome that they translate those complex data concepts. Now, the reason I'm really interested in that is two weeks ago, Angela Merkel, the German chancellor, she asked me to join her digital advisory board, digital, digital rat, as it's digital rat, it would be in English, but mm. that's not quite the right meaning. <laughs> and the task I have is in the topic of data and society to think how we can change the mindset of people. I personally think that Black Mirror is one of the ways where smart people found a way to get people to think about the data they create, and for people to see that there are positive things in a society like that, and also there are things they might not want, and what do they need to do in order to not end up where they don't want to be, but what do they need to do or not do to end up where they want to be. Every child born in China has its DNA sequenced, and that has crazy opportunities. Is that a fact? It's, that's the case, yes. Okay. That has crazy opportunities 
but also amazing risks. If a modern day Hitler or somebody who runs Facebook or whatever has certain ideas of what's good and what's not good. It's eugenics 2.0. Yeah. So I think education, digital literacy is something which is super important. And whether I talk about that equation you wanted to start with, that function, that social function, or whether I'm taking about mindset shift, I'm always talking about the same thing. This, how can we create this relatively neutral resource which we are creating exponentially called data? Yeah. How can we turn this into something good? How can we make the data off the people and by the people data for the people? And how can we avoid that it will be against, used against the people? So that leads to my second question, which is, is privacy dead and should we care? For example, like GDPR in the UK, GDPR, in, in Europe, yeah. you know, say what you want about it. It's an attempt to kind of put some guardrails around data, how it is used, our permissions, etc. It's unclear what, if much has actually changed. You tick a box when you go on a website. But there's clearly backlash around this idea of I'm just living my life online and all of my information is fair play. Is privacy dead and is and, there any way to turn and that? And get used to it. As we have heard 25 years ago by the then CEO of Sun. So we live in a post-privacy economy. Having the romantic view that it should be different doesn't do anybody, any individual, any citizen, any customer any good. Maybe it does some organization some good. But enlightenment, data enlightenment, we need to be clear. Where do we necessarily create data in order to get services we are interested in? For example, if I want my phone to ring, then there needs to be some base station that knows that I'm nearby and can send me that signal. Or if I want to get that seamless delivery, I better tell the delivery boy where I'm living. If I just say, oh, just drop it off where you feel like it, I don't think, you know, I'll really get that pizza. So what is important to me is that people understand what is necessary and where are organizations just asking for data that are useful for them, maybe, but not for me. Most CRM systems, customer relationship management systems, are not there for the customer. They are there for the marketeer. Mm. I just registered for a conference, and they asked me all these questions, like what's the size of your organization and so on. Do I get any benefit from that? No. It is for them to allocate the marketing dollars. That I do not like. So us becoming digitally literate about us becoming informed and enlightened and inspired about the possibilities we have with data. What that means is we need to get mental models. So literacy has meant that we can look at a text, at a paragraph, and figure out what it's about. Digital literacy means that we understand from a set of numbers what it means, whether our brokerage is screwing us, whether that bank which promises $50 as you open the account and that has horrific fees, whether that bank you know, is just trying to fool us. 
It also means to understand that there is no privacy. It is so that should, that should, that's what we should get. This idea of privacy point. is quaint. Yeah, privacy is quaint. You have no privacy. Now see what can you get in exchange for that lost privacy. So my stance is many people tell you, you should get your privacy back. And I think that might sound neat, but it is too expensive for most people. In most cases, actually, it's un- impossible. Instead, you should go to the governments, to the Googles and the Facebooks, and say, well, dear Facebook, I want you to do better. My problem is not that Facebook is showing me ads. My problem is that shows Facebook is showing me bad ads. So how is it possible that an organization that knows so much about me has such shitty algorithms compared to, you know, <laughs> what other companies have? That is my problem. They've taken your privacy and they've given you a bad return on that investment, yes. so to speak. Yeah, in my book, Data for the People, I precisely have that as one of the measures, one of the metrics for companies. What is my return on data? So I'm clear, I am giving data. I'm giving data by living, by breathing, by walking. But I want companies to actually do the best possible job for me. Again, not for themselves. I'm not that interested in how much money Mark Zuckerberg is making. I'm interested in whether my incentives can be somehow more aligned with his. But that gets to the whole fundamental structure of the modern internet because it's ad-based. Aside from what you pay to get access. Yeah, and access, as I said, I'm very happy to see it. I just popped down $8,500 for a chair I saw on Facebook. It must be a fabulous chair. It will be a fabulous chair, you know? No question about it. <laughs> Uh, so I am not against ads. I think it would be stupid against ads. I do understand how that works, that third parties pay for the services. So I think one question is, uh, that question was asked to a number of um, outlets in the context of the hearings, the Facebook hearings. One question is, what is going on? And I think he is trying, but he is just not good enough. Zuckerberg. Yeah, he doesn't have the team to actually do a good job. And then there's a question, what do you do after you fuck up? And I think integrity would be a good idea, which is to say what you know and to do what you say, as opposed to covering up and turtles upon turtles. And I don't know just how many Wall Street Journal stories showed some inconsistencies in what was said and actually what was the case. Everybody makes mistakes. And Esther Dyson has this wonderful saying, make new mistakes every day. The premise feels a bit fatalistic insofar as that, okay, so privacy is dead, privacy is quaint. Because we have effectively sleptwalked into this deal and now retroactively be like, oh, this is, a, this is a crappy deal. Why is it a crappy deal? I think we have never lived in such an amazing time every year. I've lived a life I couldn't have lived before. When I came to the States in 86 to go to grad school, you know, we just had ICQ, like a messenger system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I could stay in touch with the people in my office in Bonn, where I did my undergrad. Then in 91, 92, I ran a contest at the Santa Fe Institute, uh, jointly with Neil Gershenfeld at MIT. 
and I was teaching in Thailand at the university at Chulalongkorn. And we got email twice a day. And, you know, if you didn't get it out before 8 a.m., it would be on the evening mail yeah. connection. So I've always pushed those envelopes. And now, now it's probably life camming. One of the classes I taught at Berkeley, we had the team of one of these life camming sites share some of their insights about how it works. And it's absolutely fascinating. That wouldn't have been possible five years prior. I take your point. But, for example, what about the idea of, say, Facebook, you pay 10 bucks a month or a year or whatever, or Google 5? And it's a sliding scale depending on how much you earn or whatever. And instead of, and then you just use this service as opposed to giving them your data, they mining it, spinning it all around and, and, and training, for example, artificial intelligence that may someday endanger your job or invade your privacy or what have you. So I am totally open to the FIFA service that you pay Facebook or that you mm. pay Google. I just don't think that that is the main point. What I have a problem with is that the Facebook CEO seems to you know really not be on top of the game when he does a right. testimony. And what I have a problem with is that the Google CEO uh, refused to go to Washington to testify. You should have that transparency. If you have a billion people in your network and you were not elected as a leader, then I think you should try to have that transparency. Having spent some time with Angela Merkel two weeks ago, I'm actually deeply impressed about how some other countries really care for their citizens, how genuinely they want to benefit from digitization. That leads to my third question, which is, can data for people, is that actually possible? Because right now it feels like it's data for the companies, data for the corporations. And like we get these free services, which you know, in many respects are fabulous. But there is this trade-off. And obviously, yes, it's a, the, the, the Googles and Facebooks, et cetera, are accumulating wealth at an, a historic pace and in the process disrupting a lot of other industries, et cetera, and causing all of these other quite profound economic effects. And it's going to, you know, all this money is flowing up the funnel and we're kind of feasting on these free services. But I think the problem is how we define value. Many people low redefine value. So last night, a former student came over who is now in the blockchain space, and we had just a truly wonderful conversation, former teaching assistant of mine. So that is very difficult different value for both of us than anything monetary. I'm not advisory his company. He didn't ask me for money. It was just an amazing human being you have worked with, seeing how we see the world. For me, that is super valuable. So the low redefinition, which we often see by advocates like John Lanier, trying to express it in dollars, I think that is flawed by the very start. I did write a Los Angeles Times op-ed piece last year where I figured out just how many dollars it would be if beloved Facebook distributed all its profits. And it would, I think, be about one latte macchiato per quarter per user. One latte macchiato per quarter? What's that, about four bucks? If they distributed 
their profits to their users. Yeah. If you just take the They became rate, a co-op effectively. Exactly. Right. So I rather have Facebook than one more latte macchiato. But you still have Facebook and a latte. No? Or they don't have the profits to keep I'm just saying on. that um, <laughs> if you make the argument that Facebook should pay its users, you shouldn't make it in the abstract. And as a physicist, I'm always interested in orders of magnitude. Mm-hmm. You should put into account and how much would that roughly be. And most people would rally behind you and say, absolutely, yes, data capitalism, we need to stop that. When they see it's a cup of coffee, then probably they find a different cause, which is more important for them. Similarly, the amount you would have to pay Facebook is a fraction of what you're paying your carrier, AT&T, T-Mobile. So there are services we pay for. And I'm with Hillary Clinton when it comes to the speech she gave at New Year's two or three years ago, where she talked about the right to be connected. That, for me, is a fundamental right Mm. which will help reduce social discrepancies if you really make it, as Jeff Bezos would say, trivially easy for people to be connected. Speaking of Bezos, so they, I think just today, right before you walked in, they just became the second trillion dollar company mm-hmm. after Apple. But that was not related to me walking in today. No, no, separate events, coincidence. Um, <laughs> do you agree with the premise that basically... Amazon is going to win and everybody else in retail and whatever else industry it gets into is going to lose. What is it that they do that is fundamentally different than all these other companies that seems to keep it just growing and growing and growing? So I can only answer it from my perspective of having been chief scientist and worked with Jeff. I think two things. One, and that might sound like party speak, but it really is true. This relentless customer centricity. I'm not getting paid for saying this. (laughs) So if you know the guy, if you know the people who he likes, there really is something absolutely beautiful about really wanting to use the data for the people. So that customer centricity is, I think, pillar number one. Pillar number one is that constant curiosity and that belief in the scientific method. We don't know. They won. But let's try something out. Let's see what can we measure. And more than once, half people in the room had differing attitudes about what we thought the outcome would be. And it's very important to sort of define the metrics, uh, how you evaluate the outcomes before the experiment is done. Uh, so I think that ultimate absolute focus on the customer and at the same time that willingness it can always be interesting and there's a way to find out uh, that is to well define an experiment and then see what the world tells us and that's what has made Amazon Amazon but that those two things sound and they may be much harder in reality but it sounds quite simple if I'm Macy's or I'm H&M and I've been in retail I'm serving customers for decades Presumably, I'm going to make the customer first. Presumably, I'm going to experiment with ways to make the machine better. So let's talk H&M. Okay. I worked with the CEO last year in Stockholm. 
and he's a super great guy. And it is fascinating. So I bought, you know, actually this very hoodie here. Did you buy those socks there? Uh, no, the box, the socks I bought in the castle. So bought, for the listeners, Andres has some fabulous striped socks. I actually also have striped socks. I'm a fan of the um, kind of the loud socks. So props, yeah. props on the socks. One of the failed startups, which also was uh, financed by David Shaw, who used to be Jeff Bezos' boss, was called Stock Market. But after the fact, the CEO, a wonderful character, and I, we thought we should just instead have done shock market or sock market. You should have. I said, look, you have cameras in your shop, the flagship shop in Stockholm. You should know how long the line is because there were like 10 people in front of me. You should be able to do staffing better than you do. Given that you have the data, why don't you do it? Now, in many of these examples, there are companies in the ecosystem which do this in an innovative way. For the staffing problem, for instance, there's a company called Percolada in Palo Alto that only do one thing. They make predictions how many people you need in the store tomorrow between, say, 10.15 and 10.30, just based on data. Now, that is significant saving in a good way for, for companies. I mean, you could save by saying you cut your staff by 10%, but that would make the customer unhappy. Yeah. But having five extra salespeople in a shop when no customer is there, that doesn't do anybody any good. So that's an example of, you know, you have cameras, where are you taking this data into action? And the other example, which you know, is dynamic action, which takes the thinking of Amazon and makes it accessible to an H&M, for example. They help, they help the big companies analyze their data, basically make it into actionable. Act on their data. Yeah. You know, one of the things which always drives me crazy is when people talk about actionable insights. That's a piece of bullshit. Yeah. Actions is what matters. So back to the H&M example. So there was one store where they had just too many XLs, which was good for me, you know. So what do they do? Uh, do they put signs up on the store? Hey, come in if you're extra large. That would be kind of weird. Yeah. Do they just overall mark everything down? Well, that means they're also giving away stuff they could sell at a higher price. You have to shift from the unit being the store to the unit being the customer. And suddenly it's clear what you need to do. You know what size customers buy. You know what they click on on the web or they have credit cards and you know that that person always buys extra large. So what you now do is you just simply send a message to only those customers who are extra large and tell them about that sale in their neighborhood. Now, if one of them brings somebody else who doesn't buy extra large, be my guest. But that's an example of how you move from a store, a physical store as unit of analysis to the individual as unit of analysis. There are counterexamples for that. Mortgages. We talked about China and credit scores. Mm. It's interesting. So, and I'm just selling my place in China. And I had a mortgage for that. That uh, people gave me the mortgage in China had zero interest who I was. They were interested in what is that place and what is our predictive model for what's happening that place in the next years. That is in Jing'an, Shanghai, good area, getting even better. He gets any mortgage he wants because if he stops paying, you know, we foreclosure. So when you got that mortgage, you, I just bought a house. 
which is a terrible experience here. Because you have to give effectively everything but a blood sample to for the bank to give you a loan. You're saying in China, they were just basically, where do you live? What's your property? Well, exactly. What is the property? No, not where do you live, but what is the collateral? What is it that what you is the want asset? the money for? What's the asset? Exactly. And the funny thing was, when it came to uh, what's your name, I just made up a Chinese name, Wei Suan. Because some graduate students of mine, they thought that would be a nice name. Wei Suan. The one out on the ocean thinking of the score, of the shore. So, so now, you actually made up a name. I made up a name. I made up and a name. And you got funded. And that is the name on the title <laughs> and on the mortgage. So <laughs> it is not so easy now to convince the authorities that, hey, I'm that guy. You know, of course, you know, it. I don't look like it. I don't speak like it. I don't have a document for it. But yeah, it's me who bought that place. And there's only one linkage document, which was my German passport from way back then, which, you know, is some yeah. set of letters and numbers. And that seems to have been good enough to make them believe that I can actually sell that place as opposed to it being a scam. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. But so go, just going back to Amazon, we read a lot about the, uh, the quote-unquote retail apocalypse or the apocalypse of kind of traditional retail, do you, be, do you believe that that is happening or that it, it is inevitable just the way these things are going? And obviously Amazon sh- showing the way of, okay, you can do this in a much better way. Yes. So I view it important to understand what are structural changes. And we now live in a world where everything and everybody is connected 24-7. And... There are things like last night, you know, I like to have coffee with milk in the morning and I ran out of milk at like 10.30 p.m. So I asked my roommate whether he can please do me the favor and buy some milk because the corner store is still closed in the morning when I'm coming out to the studio here. So there are things where I'm very grateful and pay whatever premium I had to pay to have that milk ready in the morning when I make my coffee. For most other things, the behavior of a billion people, how they think about buying things has changed. And that's a structure changed based on us being connected, based on data ultimately. But not only that, going back to China, a behavior of a billion people has changed almost overnight in how they pay. China used to be very 
cash-based society. Yeah. Now with WeChat Pay and with Alipay, part of Ant Financial, it is crazy that on many days in China, I don't even bother bringing my wallet. I just bring my phone and a charger because wow. if you're out of battery, you're, you're out of money. <laughs> well, that leads to my last question, which is artificial intelligence. It's like a big buzzword. Machine learning, another buzzword. At various times in history, especially artificial intelligence has been a buzzword, has been this thing into which great hope has been put. And every time it has fallen far short. But are we now at a kind of an epical shift in that this can actually start to work simply because we have all of this data to train AI on now? When I think about what I did today, I hold my telephone up and I speak into it and it does things for me. Had you told me that somebody was doing that 20 years ago, you would have probably sent them to a psychiatric facility. Check. Yeah. So there are many things, AI things, which I would say this is our different challenge to me, which we already use and don't maybe don't even call AI. So one problem with the term is that some people always define it to be something in the future. Insurance is a very interesting area. I'm part of insuretech.vc, a German group of people thinking about insuretech. And there, the amount of data you have about people or about crops or about whatever people want to insure is just crazy compared to the past. So the question there is less of technology of data, but the question is, what world do you want to live in? Or going back to the question we had at the beginning, what really is fairness in a world where we do know as opposed to fairness in a world where we didn't know. Yeah, well, because it's funny you should say that about insurance. I was at an incubator last year, and they had an insurance kind of specialism there. I saw this one company that you take a selfie, you send it to this insurance, the, this technology company, and they can, they say, predict how long you're going to live within reason. They can see if you were a smoker or not by the effect or not on your skin. And it's they're selling it as a tool to insurance companies to be like, all right, this is another way to underwrite. Give us a selfie and we can predict how long you're going to live or if you're a smoker. And it, does, it feels like there is going to be... Snake oil. You think that's snake oil? So... <laughs> but that's the thing. Speaking of much, artificial intelligence, there's a lot of snake oil. Yes, as much snake oil as that paper that came out of Stanford... Uh, what paper people is that? being able to predict whether you are gay or not. Based oh on your yes, the, the Instagram or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I find it embarrassing how institutions lend their names to the crap some people produce. I'm, I'm a scientist. You know, I'm about experiments. I've done A/B testing all my life. One of my sayings in the book is: making recommendations is easy evaluating them is hard. I mean, I can recommend anything to you. So I can say, oh, you're a smoker, I can see, but evaluating is hard. Yeah. And that's why I put so much emphasis on that objective function, on that evaluation function. So I don't know about that specific example. I would be very suspicious. One thing which we have seen again and over, again over history is true. If you have low data long time scale 
high noise environments, you tend to, to be doing well if you make predictions. Let's think the high priests in Egypt. They were predicting where the next floods of the Niles are coming. I mean, that happened with the time scale of a few years. And, hey, you know, you can't expect us to be always right. Yeah. And, uh, it's like Nostradamus saying there's going to be a war in the next 500 years or something. Yeah. Yeah. All the doctors in the Middle Ages, bloodletting. Some might argue that religion falls into the same category. I would argue that financial advisors nowadays fall in that category. Oh, just trust me. Sorry, we lost 20% of your assets in last month. But just stay with us in the long run because in the long run, we'll always be doing well. You know. Yeah. Statements like this, we take a picture of your face and we know what will happen to you in the long run. One, it is noisy. People understand that you won't be predicting with certainty. Two, it is in the long run, long time scales, meaning you can stay in business for quite a while selling that snake oil because, you know, hey, I don't make predictions under 10 years from now. Yeah. And three, it is a high noise environment. But this takes us right back to where we started, the social credit score. We don't know what goes into that. And we don't know how to tweak it. We don't know what the state values or a company will value in creating this one score that can determine the whole kind of arc of your life. Uh, we do know. I mean, as I said, I can't read Chinese, but I had people who actually showed me mm. the terms, including the one which we discussed that, you know, I respect my parents. Yeah. I think the problem is a different one. The problem is what about incorrect data? So if we had no noise, if we had correct data about everything, I could live with it. Mm. But what now if either just by mistake there is stuff wrong about me or like with my Chinese name? Good luck, dear AI system, figuring out that this waste on is the same as, you know, in America, they know me as Andreas Weigand. Mm. When I got my last German passport, she looked at the other side of my birth certificate, which was the one by the church, and there says Sebastian Weigand. So my German passport is now for Sebastian Weigand. So good luck you know, yeah. on data. And the other question is when blockchain is coming in. Because I think by being able to trace back immutable history, that that guy really is the same guy as that guy, or that data really is the data which we had collected, is, I think, one technological step going forward. Now, the tricky thing is that we want to have that in a symmetrical way. So I'm a huge fan of data symmetry. In this case of my past data, yes, I want you, dear potential insurance company, to have my correct data. Let's say if it's a car mm -hmm. insurance company, I really want you to make sure that this is my data, that I wasn't faking it. And that's your good right. On the other hand, I want to be in charge of who I share that data with. And so having the combination between blockchain, where we can't change things, and encryption, where I have a key and I decide who is getting to read what part of my data, is a very good combination. Yeah. And the number of companies in that space, carblock.io, based here and in China, is one of those which takes really technology to do the right thing in this data-symmetric world. I met a company called Sensei. They've created a token. They have three or four or five million people who you, who are on the Sense network. 
it's basically it values your knowledge. So if you know a lot about the Battle of Wounded Knee, for example, and someone asks a question and then you come up with this amazing response, they can give you tokens. And then in the blockchain, that transaction is recorded forever. And so if somebody refers back to that and uses it, then you get more tokens. And that is a real way to value your knowledge. And then you can sell those tokens you know, out in the real world and make money. Yeah, there's so much hype about blockchain. Yes, there Being is. really clear what it does better than anything else, and in most cases, what traditional architectures could do just as well, is an important part in my bigger picture of digital literacy. Yeah, nobody really understands what the blockchain is. Not the man in the street, anyway. But it's getting better, I but guess. But nobody understood what a transistor was or... True. Still, ABS they still don't. <laughs> and their block system. But we know how to use it. We will, as a culture, emerge with norms on how it is. I mean, dating sites, online dating is another example. Or, yeah, Snapchat, where initially people said, what? The picture disappears after a few seconds. What is this about? And then norms evolve. I always argued that you know, in the back of the computer somewhere that image still sits. So if somebody wants to get it, they can. And then I realized, and that is not the question. Because if I take a picture of the snap you're sending to me and then distribute it, it doesn't look bad on you. It looks bad on me. Yeah. Because I've violated what the community agreed on. So it is interesting, where do we have technologies like encryption, blockchain, supporting what we actually want as people? And where do we as people just adjust and don't care really whether we could do something because as a group, that doesn't get us anywhere on that dating site. Just before you go, is Angela Merkel interested at all in this idea of a social credit score, a kind of a number that defines your life? You know, it hasn't come up yet. We have talked about interesting things in terms of innovation. For example, the idea of force being, forcing our friends at Facebook and Google, not by slapping fines onto them, they do this already, but of forcing them to share data in an anonymous way to enable startups to also right. play. Yeah. So this data monopoly, which is, I think, very bad for innovation. So we are thinking about what can we do there to empower more innovation. The credit score, no, I'll see you again next month. Yeah. As I topic. just imagine that would be a particularly um, potentially toxic idea, especially obviously given the history of... The question is always, what is the alternative? I think we live in a world where rolling dice is what most people don't prefer over making decisions based on data. So what we, or she, as government, needs to push on is the transparency of these algorithms, that truthfulness. And what we as individuals need to be educated in is, what am I to gain from sharing data with an organization, whether it's a state or whether it's a company? I'm going out to Tallinn in Estonia in a couple of weeks to do a masterclass for Bosch mm. on digital transformation, which just happens to be held in Tallinn. And I'm going to meet with the government because I'm very curious, this e-government which we see there. And one of the rules they have is the that they can only ask once. So if they ask me for something and I answer it, 
I am not obliged to answer it again. I can say, look in your database. Right. And right. I like those things. Right. I like how citizens put pressure on governments, on institutions, to shift that balance of power at least just by a little bit back to the person. Because I really believe that the data of the people and data by the people should be data for the people. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Andreas for being so generous with his time. I'm not sure what to think really about some of this stuff. You know, that basically privacy is dead and get over it. That's, um, I mean, I think that's probably true, but how you deal with that, I think is, um, yeah, it's a tricky question. It's a very, very tricky question. And I also wanted to say for those eagle-eared listeners, last week I talked about how we were going to have an episode on outer space and living forever, all that kind of jazz. Slight change of plans, obviously, but that is coming. The interview is done. We just have to check off a couple boxes before we go ahead with that one. So stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, find me in the Sunday Times or online at thetimes.co.uk on Twitter at Danny Fortson. Email me any questions or comments, danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. And please give us a rating, give us a review. Do it for me, do it for the Kipper. It really does help. That's all. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.